That sounds, Greg, completely reasonable. But here's the thing, college sports, and when it comes to college sports and money, there's nothing truly reasonable about Fair. it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on You Think, presented by Audiorama and Body Armor. A um, lot going on in our sports crazy house. Um, I have recently started now, we've transitioned from our summer baseball world to now I am this fall going to be coaching my son's 11U tackle football team. I, I've talked a lot on the show about how we waited uh, a little bit to, to try tackle football with our oldest. And here we are. We have eventually, we are diving right into the tackle football world. We've had our first week of practice uh, this past week. We're in uniform, helmet, shoulder pads, full uni, the whole thing. So that's been fun. I'm actually doing it with my dad and Luke Keekley um, and a few other dads here in town um, that I know whose kids are on the team. So it's a blast, you know, to be back on the field in the summer kind of feels like old times. So uh, I'm sure I will have a lot of updates this fall as we uh, now venture into our latest youth sports experience in, uh, in pop Warner tackle football. So I'm sure it'll be wild like every other sport we've played, but, uh, I know the kids are looking forward to it and I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. it, it it's fun teaching the kids football, teaching them something that you feel so strongly and passionate about. So that's been cool. Um, today's guest is a great one. I think you guys are going to be fascinated. I know I was, I learned so much. Today's guest is Luke Fedlam. Uh, Luke is an NIL expert. For any of you who don't know NIL, it's the name image likeness. You can't watch, you know, sports center, or you can't watch anything related to, to the NCAA and college athletics without hearing, you know, the NIL conversation, kids making money off their name, endorsement deals. It's everywhere. He's a sports attorney. He's an author of the book, Sports Law, A Practical Guide to Protecting the Interests of Athletes. It, it was an unbelievable conversation. There's so much really interesting backstory of how we've gotten to this point. Um, Luke was, was just really dynamic, really well-educated and informed and did a great job kind of packaging it and presenting it in a way that was easy for everyone to understand. So I hope you guys really enjoy um, this conversation, a little bit of an educational twist for all of us. So now the next time NIL comes up at a dinner party or comes up around the table, you're going to be, uh, now you're going to be an expert. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks again to our sponsor, Body Armor. Uh, Body Armor fuels this show, and it also fuels my sports teams. Listen, when you spend the amount of time that we do at ball fields, summer tournaments, as I mentioned, football practice um, in the evenings, it's 100 degrees here in North Carolina. There's, there's practices, there's nights, there's weekends where we go through cases of Body Armor. My favorite is orange. Uh, I know everybody has their their pick. A lot of people like strawberry, banana. I, I prefer the orange. Um it's just the best. You know, it's my kid's favorite. It's all that's in our house. We drink it at home. We drink it at practice. And, uh, you know, it really, it keeps us going on those long, uh, those long, excited, those long, exciting sports weekends and evenings that we have in our family. So thank you so much to Body Armor. Body Armor is made with coconut water, B vitamins, and has no artificial sweeteners. For more information, you can go to drinkbodyarmor.com. And now please enjoy this conversation with NIL expert, sports attorney, Luke Fedlam. Luke, thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and kind of sharing your expertise into this world that I have to be honest, Luke, I have a lot of learning to do myself. So I am happy to have you. So thank you for joining us. Greg, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a great conversation. There's so much that we can talk about. 
There is. So first and foremost, right? So anyone you're watching Sports Center, you're you're reading Twitter, NIL is just thrown around now. It's just it's a it's a common phrase. But let's just back up and start from the beginning. Name, image, likeness. Just explain to everyone listening exactly what that means, what it means for the athletes, what it means for the schools, the boosters that just give us a, a good starting point to jump off from exactly what NIL is. Sounds great. And for your listeners, get prepared. We're going to have a three hour episode today uh, because it's going to take us a long time to get into all of this. So name, image, and likeness. And I love that you're starting with what is it? Because a lot of times people don't always understand what name, image, and likeness actually is. So I'm going to give you maybe two different ways of thinking about it, maybe a legal definition, and then a more practical understanding and definition of NIL. So name, image, and likeness from a legal perspective, it's all about your persona rights, the rights that we as individuals have to our name, to our image and our likeness. And when the NCAA allowed for schools to come up with their own policies related to name, image, and likeness, it basically said, student athletes, you can now license your name, image, and likeness to a third party for compensation. Right. But let's let's break down even what that means, because a lot of student athletes, we have the the, the honor uh, to really travel around the country and work with college athletic departments and talk with student athletes. And a lot of student athletes don't actually understand what the individual components of name, image and likeness mean. So name is just that. Right. It's your name. It's Greg Olson. Got it. Um, we understand what name is and most student athletes do as well. Image is a video or a picture of an individual. Right. So that's something that can be very clear. We know we're, we're used to seeing as athletes, seeing pictures of ourselves or videos and what have you. That's the image portion. But likeness, a lot of people think that likeness has to do with someone's celebrity status or likability, their followers or likes on social media. Likeness is actually defined as a graphic representation of someone. So if we were to think about Michael Jordan, right, we know the Jumpman logo on sneakers and on apparel, we know that that reflects that that is an image or excuse me, a likeness of Michael Jordan. So that's really what name, image and likeness is. And it's this idea now that student athletes can license the use of their name, image and likeness for the first time to a third party to be able to be compensated for that. But broadly speaking, and this is the more practical definition. Broadly speaking, name, image, and likeness, or NIL, really is the opportunity for student athletes at the college level and at some high school levels. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a little bit. But for them to be able to make money and earn compensation in ways that student athletes have never been able to before. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I I remember back to when I was in school, you know, when I was in college, early 2000s. So again, not not too long ago, it it was 20 years, but not not too long ago. So early 2000s, I'm in school. This conversation with the NCAA was around then. It was around probably 20 years earlier than that, right? So I remember being in school and the the conversation centered around should student athletes be able to get more in their scholarship stipends, their scholarship checks, which was like a monthly, um, you know, every first of every month, you got a check. If you lived off campus, it'd pay for rent, food, you know, whatever it was, anything non-school related. And the, and the NCAA, and there was constant back and forth. You know, you'd see coaches make, you know, at the time they're making millions of dollars and being able to leave and, and go to different schools. And then these kids are stuck with their scholarships and they're not able to transfer. Again, a whole separate policy. But the point is this conversation has been going around now for decades. And I was always a big believer that the NCAA kind of shot themselves in the foot if they would have been a little bit more open-minded 20 years ago and said, you know what? making millions of dollars on the backs of these college athletes, you know, specifically the revenue generating sports. If we can just up their 
monthly, you know, build it into their scholarship check or give them some more off campus, you know, food coupon, whatever. There was a million ways to slice it. And they were so hard headed and they were so narrow minded that now once the the case reached the Supreme Court, which we're going to get to now, the floodgates are open. So so along those lines, give us a little history of how we got here. I, I remember going through it, like I just said, as an athlete, but give us a little more behind the scenes journey that led to the big, you know, the big court case which just made it a free market and made it a, you know, what it is today. Were there steps along the way that maybe we could have headed this off and had a more compromising, compromising system? Absolutely, Greg. You, yeah. you hit it right on the head. It, the NCAA could have dealt with this. And, and really, truly, in 2009, 2008, 2009, 2010, there was this court case that was going through called Ed O'Bannon. And it was the Ed O'Bannon case. And he took yeah. on the NCAA and he took on EA Sports. Uh, and most people remember it because that's what really brought the end to, you know, EA, uh, you know, NCAA football and basketball. And, and But at that time, at that time, that's when the NCAA could have said, hey, here is a more common sense approach to how we can make sure that student athletes, since we're making millions and at the time even billions of dollars off of the the athletic ability of the athletes, they could have made a a common sense decision as to what name, image, and likeness could have looked like back then. But they didn't. So how did we get to where we're at today, to where the floodgates have now opened, as as you said? So really fast forward from then that Ed O'Bannon time frame, 2008, 2009, to 2019, so 10 years later. 2019, the state of California said, we want to put together legislation for student athletes who are in the state of California at an institution of higher education for them to be able to earn compensation off of their name, image, and likeness. And the state of California, their state legislature, ultimately ended up passing that in 2019. And what they said was, NCAA, we're gonna give you time to figure this out. So we're gonna make our state law not go into effect until 2023. And that will give you these four years to kind of figure it out. But guess what? Because this is state law, NCAA regulations cannot trump state law. So ultimately, you're going to have an issue if we, as a state of California, allow for student athletes within our state to make money and it doesn't happen nationally. So it really did put the fire under the NCAA to figure this out. So they put together working groups, legislative working groups to try to figure out what this could look like. And there are some really big issues that they're dealing with because the NCAA doesn't want to be sued. They get sued all the time. So they want a safe harbor. So they're trying to figure out what can this all look like. But then let's go to 2020. So in 2020, Florida, the state of Florida says, well, hold up. If California is doing this, you know what? We're going to do the same thing. So in 2020, the state of Florida said, we're passing name, image, and likeness legislation within our state uh, for student athletes at the college level. But we don't care about being kind to you, NCAA. We want to rush this. And now 2021, July 1st, our state law is going to go into effect. So now, NCAA, you now have until July 1st of 2021 to come up with a plan for name, image, and likeness. And so the NCAA regrouped and they put together their working group and they said, okay, they started to come up with regulations. It's amazing when you're forced by state law to potentially do something, how quickly you can come up with these ideas. (laughs) Of course, it took them 20 years. They couldn't figure it out. Right, exactly. So so they said, okay, um, started to put together uh, model rules for what name, image, and likeness could look like. Now, fast forward to January 
10th or so of 2021, where they were about to vote. The Division One Council of the NCAA was about to vote on these name, image, and likeness regulations that they were coming up with that had certain guardrails, limitations, and protections in place. But the Department of Justice uh, the, for the federal government said, hey, NCAA, you know what? Why don't you hold off on this? Because we think that there's some potential antitrust violations. And we know that there's this Supreme Court case, so it's this case that's navigating its way to the Supreme Court uh, that might shed light on this. And so the NCAA then stopped. They did not take that vote. And when that happened, many other states said, OK, well, we can't let California and Florida have these laws in effect. So now states across the country are starting to pass kind of very simple common sense legislation that says our student athletes within our state can earn compensation from name image likeness, setting it to go into effect in July 1st of 2021. Fast forward to March, we had oral arguments for that NCAA versus Austin case. And then we got the decision from the Supreme Court towards the end of June of 2021 that said unanimously, NCAA, you have lost. NCAA, you do not have the ability to put limitations and um limits or caps on the compensation that student athletes can earn. Now, let's just be clear. And I want to make sure I know that your, your listener, listeners are informed listeners. And I want to make sure I'm giving them the right information. That Supreme Court case of NCAA versus Austin did not specifically deal with name, image, and likeness. It actually dealt with the ability for student. Well, the question before the court was whether or not the NCAA could put a cap or a limit on the education-related benefits that student athletes receive. So thinking things like iPads or laptops or you know stipends for studying abroad and things like that, education-related. The Supreme Court unanimously said that NCAA, you do not have that ability. And in a concurring opinion, which is an opinion that another justice writes that who agrees with everything that the court said, but wants to add a little bit more, Justice Kavanaugh decided to add a little bit more that sent chills really down the spines of the NCAA, which said, hey, NCAA, guess what? We were only dealing with education-related benefits here, but just know that if you were to put any limits on anything else relating compensation or benefits to student-athletes, under this analysis and this precedent, you will lose. And so ultimately, that's why a week later, the NCAA said, schools, come up with your own policies. We're going to step out We're of this. We're done. We're out of it. We, we don't <laughs> want to do it. So again, because of, as we touched earlier, because of their short-sightedness and because of their inability to get ahead of this and say, okay, this is coming. We, we cannot fight this forever. And instead of finding some sort of middle ground, that I think, I think back to myself in college, if they would have upped our stipend check from $1,000 to $2,000, I would have been the richest kid on campus in my mind, right? Like there was so many easy outs. I, I, we can go on and on about that. So anyway, so this now the floodgates have opened. It is in practice Absolutely. teams, schools and organizations and, and institutions are kind of now, now give, you said before to give us like a practical way of wrapping our head around it. Okay. I attend the university of Miami, South Carolina. It doesn't matter the school. How does that money now that's able to end up in my pocket as a student athlete, where does it start? What are mm. the paths in which it's passed? Which hands are, or, you know, is it, is it passed through to end up in my pocket and still be classified as legal? Because my understanding from just talking to coaches and athletes and guys that I know is they don't even really know, right? Like there's yeah. still a lot of gray area about like, in theory, here's what's allowed but there's no one policing it. There's no one enforcing right. it. So we, we, you know, you weren't allowed to pay for play. You weren't allowed to pay for a recruit, but that's what's happening. Right? It's, it's happening right. in out in the open. No one's hiding it. So now give us a step-by-step. -step. How does the process work? I want student athlete, John, 
to come to my school. I'm going to, you know, be here, this word collective, like give us an understanding mm -hmm. of the practicality of now how this all is put into place. Sure. Absolutely. And you're so right. It is such a gray area for so many people, but there are certain things that we know. And let's start with this premise, this idea that what name, image, and likeness is, is for the, the student athlete to partner with a third party. So not the school or the institution itself in order to earn compensation. And for that compensation, they have to provide a service, right? There has to be this quid pro quo, this idea that someone is paying them for a service and the student athlete is providing that service. So whether that's social media influencing, autograph signings, making an appearance somewhere, they have to do something as a student athlete. And that is so vague in and of itself, which is why it could look like pay for play, because if the money gets in the hands and, you know, $100,000 to send one IG post or one tweet right, it's on not market, Twitter. It's not market value. Right, right. So here's how <laughs> here's how that money flows, right? The the process, I would I would argue that there are probably three different ways in which name, image, and likeness deals kind of happen, right? Legitimately. One is somebody reaches out to the student athlete directly. That happens. Student athletes, um, I know back when we were in college, uh, social media wasn't a thing. So it wasn't like people were just DMing us, right? But right. now everyone can just student athletes on July 1st last year started putting on their social media. My DMS are open. I am open for business, right? Yep. I mean, of course, great idea. Yep. So exactly. people might reach out directly to that student athlete to say, Hey, we would love for you to represent our brand. We'd love for you to represent our car dealership, our, um, you know, our nutritional company, our clothing company, whatever it may be. So student athletes sometimes will get people reach out to them directly. Um, they'll want them to sign a contract, Hopefully, as a lawyer, I'm hoping that there's a contract involved, um, but the student athlete will provide a service and that company or that brand will pay that student athlete directly. And that therefore money gets in the pockets of that student athlete. That's kind of one way. And that is probably the most clean and simplistic way of looking at that. The second way, if we take it up a notch, is there, there are some student athletes who are elite enough either through their athletic performance or because they happen to have a big social media following or be someone who's kind of known now in this industry, um, they may decide that they want to hire, decide to hire a marketing agent or a marketing representation. Now, what we, and you know, um, kind of given your history, that for the longest time, you can't have conversations with agents until a certain period, right? You can't sign anything with an agent until after you've exhausted your eligibility or declared for the draft, right? But now, as long as the student athlete is only signing for representation on the marketing side and nothing related to their playing ability or a future player contract at the professional level, they can sign with a marketing agent. And so some student athletes are signing with marketing agents to go out and find them deals, just like they do at the pro level, go find them deals. What's interesting and I know you probably appreciate this and are probably blown away by it, which is the fact that college student athletes, a lot of people want to work with college student athletes more so in certain instances than people want to work with pro athletes. And that's because the price, price points can be lower or because, um, you know, there's a, an allegiance to my college or university, my alma mater, more so than the pro team that I work with. Right. So so it's fascinating. No, no, and, and that's the part I want to touch on next. What you just said, I think is so important. And this is the part that I still have a hard time wrapping my head around. I, I understand people want to paint this in a free market capitalistic, which I am in full support of, right? In, right. in all markets that, that, oh, that operate in an open, in an open format, things just work better. They're not controlled. They're not ready. I, I I'm all for that. But what you just said to me is the, the part that I just struggle wrapping my head around. I'm a car dealership in Tuscaloosa or Columbus or pick a school. Mm -hmm. And I want to get 
one of your players on the team, one of your wide receivers. He has 10,000 Instagram followers, nothing crazy. He's a good player. And all of a sudden I give him a Mercedes. I give him a GM, whatever the, the company is. He posts one picture. Hey, thanks so much to Luke's Chevy, blah, blah, blah. There's no one in the world that thinks that's a free, <laughs> that's a free exchange of business, right? Right. That is right. strictly because that car dealership, that business owner, that whoever the person is, whatever industry has an allegiance to said university. Yes. So when, when the idea is you can't pay for play and that you can't alter recruiting and you can't, who in their right mind is going to sit there with a straight face and say that business owner, that operator made a business decision to give a car to give $100,000, to give some significant value for a social media post on a kid right. who has, it's not the Kardashians. They don't have 50 million <laughs> followers. The kid has 10,000 followers and I'm sure 8,000 of them are other college kids. So like, <laughs> that's the part to me where I still say, well, who are we kidding? They yep. are paying for play. They all are altering recruiting. When kids enter the portal, it's no longer where am I getting my education? It's who can put me the biggest NIL deal together? Like, how do we combat that? Or do we just say, we're not combating it? Like we are, boosters are now legally getting their hands into kids' pockets to alter decision-making on where kids attend school. This, this I know is not shocking to you, but it's crazy that this happened before name, image, and likeness, right? So, so let's be clear that with name, image, and likeness, we've now tried to put this legal framework to do something that has been happening for years. Before name, image, and likeness, boosters, alumni, friends of universities uh, were putting money in the hands of college student athletes to help sway their decision-making, to help them make the decision as to where they're gonna go to school, e or maybe- just for, just for our viewers, illegally. Illegally for yeah, I was trying sure. to make sure we're clear. Yes, yeah, make sure absolutely okay. complete violation of NCAA rules, not authorized and not allowed. This has, for those who don't know, this has been happening for years. Now, that does not make it right, right? Name, image, and likeness. So, what we're seeing now is trying to use a legal vehicle to do something that really, when we really break it down, is still in violation of, of the, the ethos, if you will, of what college amateur sports are all about. That this idea that a student athlete should come through high school, they're a great student athlete, they should have all the schools open to them, they make a decision based on what they feel like is best for them, and then they go play their sport for the love of the sport, and, and who knows where their life goes from there. But we know that there's a lot of money in college sports. And so what we're seeing now is boosters, others, business owners who are saying, okay, maybe I've been donating money to the university uh, for their athletic department to build bigger stadiums, to put a barber shop in the locker room, to, to do all these cool things that we do now, right? Um, but, but now I want to take a portion of that money and I want to put it directly in the hands of the players. I think this, because that's rampant right now. We know that for a fact. Student athletes, are, there are certain student athletes, especially when it comes to football, who are getting deals that would would never happen when they turn pro. They it, it just they they don't they don't make sense. The numbers don't work, and even if they didn't go pro, the numbers just don't make sense. But I think we're going to have a period of time where um, that will adjust over time. I think that when you think about it, if I'm a donor and I donate to an institution. Usually I get a tax benefit for that, a charitable contribution to a nonprofit organization. I might get my name put up on the stadium or my name on a meeting room or something along those lines. I get access to practice maybe or to games and season tickets. I get something in return from it. But if I'm a business owner and put, put money in the hands of a student athlete that maybe go to the school that I care about, the only thing 
The only return on investment that I might be getting here is them delivering a championship to my institution. And I think that over a few years, we're going to see that some business owners may say, I'm not getting that return on investment. Maybe I don't want to keep doing this. I think that's really interesting. And and let me let me give you this uh, kind of play devil's advocate here for a minute. I, I agree with everything you just said. I agree with completely. You brought up about the traditional way that boosters support programs, in, you know, institutions or just individual, you know, football, basketball, baseball, whatever program it is. So again, we talk about how the NCAA or these universities could have gotten ahead of this and come up with a better format to put money into the pockets of kids, which I think we're all in agreement is positive. It's just the format in which it's done. We want to make sure it's done the right way. Instead of, so this donor gives $5 million to build a new locker room, say. Like in my mind, if I'm these schools and I want to compete and I want to have a competitive advantage over these other institutions, I'm saying, okay, do I need a barbershop? Do I need a DJ booth? Do I need a water slide? Can I build it for 3 million and I take the 2 million and now I evenly distribute it across my entire team, right? So I carve $2 million out of this elaborate new locker room that we're going to use in recruiting, right? It's strictly a recruiting tool when I give these tours, but now my recruiting, if I'm now that coach or I'm that university president, when I bring recruits on board, I say, listen, we had plans to build this elaborate locker room with flat screen TVs. But you know what we did? We, we didn't see a great value. And once kids got on campus and, and utilizing those, those resources. So we carved out of that budget, thanks to X donor, and now every single month, every person in this locker room gets a check for 10 grand, five grand, whatever the, the money evens out to me. Like to me, it doesn't create divide. It doesn't create, you know, these guys getting their arms around kids and potentially, you know, strength, you know, leading them astray. It's a controlled, it's regulated. It's a little bit more easily like comrade. Like, is that crazy? Like, does that sound crazy to you that that might be a more reasonable way to take donors money? but get it into the hands of the kid in a little bit more of like a equal fashion and a little more of like a reasonable fashion. That sounds Greg, completely reasonable, but here's the thing, college sports. And when it comes to college sports and money, there's nothing truly reasonable about it. So in your instance, in your scenario, what that coach or what that athletic director is going to do is they're going to say, we want both. You know what? We'll take the $5 million so we can have the water slide and the flat screen TVs all over the locker room. And we need another $2 million that we can split up evenly among our student athletes, you know, on our football team so that they can have deals. That 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 is where, uh, and, and, uh, and I know we're talking primarily about football in this instance. And I, I want to make sure that we talk about the benefits of NIL to other sports as well, because other For student sure. athletes are really benefiting from it. But football drives so much of what we do. We look at conference realignment, the money involved there. I mean, football is driving the, the, the bus and the machine, if you will, as we go forward. But But what we're seeing is this desire to want to maximize everything. I want the best locker room and I want the best NIL program. But what you mentioned, though, just conceptually is is what we're seeing happen in some places. They are trying to figure out teams, athletic departments, uh, football teams and fans or boosters of football programs are trying to figure out how can we put deals together that puts money in the hands of all of the student athletes so that walk-ons are getting some money in their pocket as well. Um, But you're always going to have the elite of the elite on that particular team, your quarterback, your star lineman, whatever it may be, right? That you know, wide receiver, they're going to get the opportunity to do things even beyond that. But if you can have an opportunity to put the money in hands of players across the team, that always uh, bodes well, if you will, especially for the locker room. 
Yeah, and that's and that's huge. And I know that's not necessarily the area you spend a lot of your time, but like to me, just being in that locker room as a college kid, I'd have if I'm that center and I'm blocking my ass off for the quarterback, and I just find out, you know, the, the recruit coming in to, from uh, to Tennessee, the, the, the rumors are he's making eight million dollars. Who knows if that's true? Let's just, for the sake of this conversation, say that there's some legitimacy there, and I'm the senior center or I'm the senior left guard and I've waited four years to play. I, and now this freshman comes in and I'm busting my ass to block and he, and he's, I don't know. Like I understand that's the market. I understand things are not always fair. I get it. How does that not become an issue in the locker room? How does that not become a divide? Like, and I know that's probably a question for, for these coaches that are trying to probably wrap their heads around that too. But like, are those things that these universities, they have to be taking that into account as they set these collectives and everything up, right? They, they are taking that into account. Now, you know, here's interesting. And, and just as, a, as a, quick, a, a quick warning, you know, sound the whistles. I'm about to do a shameless plug here. So I have a podcast called The Game Changer Podcast with NIL expert Luke Fedlam. And just this last episode, I talked to a, an athlete. Uh, his name is Zach Harrison. He's a defensive end at Ohio State. He's likely going to be playing in the pros, you know, playing on Sundays next year. He's a true senior. And I asked him this very question. And I asked student athletes, especially in football, about this particular topic frequently. What is it like in the locker room? And one of the things that he talked about is, and I think you said it just right, right? It's the freshman coming in with a big deal that could change the dynamics. Because what he talked about is for all of his players, because I said, you've got some players that have been reported that are making some really big deals and some really big money. What, how does that play? He was like, for all of us that have been here, especially those of us that have been here before NIL, we're happy for our teammates. We're happy for our brothers to get those deals. I'm excited for them that they're doing what they're doing and they're making money. This is great. We're not letting anything come between us. But what we talked about was that as more and more students are coming in being recruited through name, image, and likeness and having deals thrown to them to come and play, that is absolutely going to have an effect. And it's going to be up to the coaches to help manage that because when you think about it, there's always been stars on a team. Any team that you've played on, you've had stars. You've had stars that have gotten more media time, a cover of magazines, opportunities to do interviews and all that kind of stuff. So coaches have had to deal with it. But money being involved can always be different. That changes things. And so we're going to have to see how that plays out. But, but I think what we're going to see are coaches having to be much more focused on it. And to be honest, we're going to have to talk to the mental health aspect of it as well of hey, I'm doing a good job out here, but I'm not getting the attention or I'm not getting deals. Does that mean I'm not worth it? Am I not as good of a student athlete? You know, what, what does that have? What impact does that have on my own self kind of worth and self perspective? We're going to have some of those issues that we're going to have to deal with as well. The only good thing is now, well, there's a lot of good things, but at least you know now who's got the barbell, right? You go out on, you go out on a Friday night in town. <laughs> exactly. the, the guy who's got the biggest collective deal, he's, he's got the barbell, which yeah. See that guy right there. We all know how much he makes he's got tonight. So let, let's transition into something you, you alluded to earlier, which is the notion that when every state is able to, to set their own legislation and how that pertains to both now the college kids on campus, of course, right. Then there's the kids that are overlapped. They're being recruited out of high school as incoming um, college players, right. Incoming freshmen. But in some States, it now goes into the high school level where some states yes. allow their high school kids to take part in the NIL. Um, you know, there was the big case a couple of years ago, Quinn yours, who is the number one quarterback in the country was committed um, to Ohio state. He was, Texas did not allow him. My, and my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Texas did not allow him to take advantage of NIL as a, as a high mm -hmm. school player. 
he reclassified, left early, and early enrolled at Ohio State. But now some states do allow you to. So just give give our viewers and and what now? How does this trickle down? We talk a lot about the college kids. Well, now I'm now I have a 16 year old. I have a 15 year old. Yes, I have to now start talk start worrying about. We we talked to Malachi Nelson, the a big recruit from California, going to USC. That's right, and him and his dad have an agent. They had people that like, talk to me about the experience and, and, and whatnot, as it pertains now to even the younger groups at the high school level. Sure. So there's, there's a couple ways to look at this first. Let's just set the stage that if you're a high school student athlete that is going to play in college, you'll be able to participate in name, image, and likeness, no matter what college or university that you go to. And so from that perspective, being prepared for that is going to be important and understanding NIL before you just land on campus is helpful. That's why we're talking, we're doing a lot of education sessions at the high school level. But to your point, Greg, there are, at this point, at the time of this recording, there are 13 states that allow for high school student athletes to earn compensation from the use of their name, image, and likeness. And we're seeing more and more states consider it. um, And the high school athletic associations are voting on it. Uh, They are approving it. So we're going to continue to see Year over year, more and more states allowing high school student athletes to engage in name, image, and likeness. And what that means is that if you're a high school baseball player or football, basketball, if you're a high school swimmer, you and, – and, and this is what's interesting – Because so many high school student athletes at this point, the younger generation, they are so engaged in social media, having social media followers and things like that, that even if they're not the star athlete, they can still earn because of the number of followers they have doing social media influencing. So we're seeing this, this kind of wave of state high school athletic associations approving name, image, and likeness. And so, yes, this conversation of education around what is name, image, and likeness, how do you protect yourself and navigate this is happening now or needs to happen at that high school level. And, and I always share this with people. I think that name, image, and likeness is the perfect conduit to provide real world practical education that develops life skills in young people like early on. Because if you talk to a high school kid that, hey, you can earn compensation, you can earn some money, now you got their attention. I Wait, I can earn money. Okay, let's talk about financial literacy now. Let's talk about understanding contracts because now the fact that I have the opportunity to make money, I'm more engaged as opposed to, oh, I don't have to worry about that for years and years to come. Now we can teach things that are important, life skills that are important to student athletes at all levels. And, and so let, let's stay on that. I was going to get to it in a minute, but now that you brought it up, I think it's a super interesting point. In your opinion, where does the responsibility lie with that? Right now we're talking, is it the family? Not, you know, not everyone's family comes from the same background. Not everyone's family has the same access to resources. We, we all understand the, the stresses and, and the realities of, of that world. Absolutely. So who's now responsible for this education? Who's responsible for providing these resources of, of educating kids on financial literacy and budgeting and contracts and dealing with lawyers? And now they have financial advisors. Well, who's a good financial advisor who my family's never invested a dollar. Now I just got a hundred grand and I'm 17. What do I do? do do? Where does that responsibility lie aside from just the individual kid themselves? Sure. So, and I think it differs depending on what level we're talking about. At the high school level, I think it really lies on the parent or family, but then also whoever the body is that authorized name, image, and likeness. What I mean by that is if a state high school athletic association says, hey, 
student athletes in our state, you now can earn compensation from name, image, and likeness. They need to have an opportunity. And we do a lot of this education. So I'm very familiar with this. They need to then say, here are ways in which you can be educated and bring in third parties to um, offer that, right? Whether it's through the internet, through a mobile learning app, et cetera. But the family has to be able to one to say, okay, we're taking this on. We're going to make sure we get smarter on this. And so hopefully there are resources that are made available then by that state high school athletic association at the college level, without question, it is the university or college's responsibility. And I say this repeatedly, they have an ethical obligation to provide real world practical education to student athletes because they are creating, there's this opportunity now where student athletes can make money. And if colleges, you know, we always talk about how historically, you know, student athletes go to school, they get paid by their education, right? They get paid by the scholarship that they receive. Well, if, if college is about providing education, then we have to make sure that now since student athletes can make money, that they are getting that information on understanding budgeting and understanding contracts, understanding working with a lawyer or a financial advisor. And I'll tell you this, the number one thing that concerns me when it comes to name, image, and likeness, even though I'm a lawyer, I always say contracts, but the number one thing is the IRS. I am much more scared of the IRS than the NCAA. That's a great point. And and here's the thing. We we do this education. We work at all levels. So we've done about uh, seven or eight Uh, NFL teams where we've gone in and talked to their rookies as part of their rookie onboarding or rookie transition program. And we talk about decision-making. We talk about, you know, transitioning from college into the pros and how do you protect yourself and all that. And one of the things we've talked about is how this class of rookies at the NFL level, it's the first time that they've uh, ever had rookies come in that were making compensation through name, image, and likeness. And every presentation that we've done, there was at least one rookie that would come up afterwards and say, Hey, I made money last year with name, image, and likeness, but I didn't pay any taxes. Like, what do I need to do now? Right? That's a reality. So that education has to occur. And at the college level, it's the responsibility of the colleges, universities. At the high school level, it's kind of a shared responsibility between parent and family, as well as a high school athletic association. I think that's such a great point. I mean, how many young kids could even explain taxes? How right. many young kids could understand filing a tax return? How many exactly. young kids could? Under, I mean, I think that's such a key point for our listeners to really wrap their heads around because Again, yes, it all sounds great. The kids are making money, but but now the Pandora's box that it opens, kids Absolutely. now have a crash course. And, and as you mentioned, colleges are definitely set up to be able to handle this, right? If, if a college yes. institution is not, uh, you know, not able to provide their student athletes, but really you would, you would hope that this would just be curriculum at the entry level, you know, 101 financial literacy sure. for the entire student body, let alone the student yes. athletes. They're, they're set up for that. The high school one scares me a little bit, right? I mean, we, we, you know, family, family dynamics are very different. The resources Absolutely of agree. a public, a public school systems in different areas are very different. The resources of athletic budgets, the athletic budgets in some of those towns in Texas are a hell of a lot different than they are in Mississippi and That's a hell right. of a, right. It's just, it's the That's reality right. of the system of, of the way our education system is set up in our country. So to me, that's, that's a little dicey to me. I think there's a lot of hope there and you, you hope these people do it the right way. Yep. But I just, I, I, I fear for these kids, these young kids now that have all these opportunities and all this money thrown in front of them, that they're prepared to, to do things the right way. Absolutely. Right. And, and the challenge, especially at the high school level is that most high school student athletes are still minors. So the parents are the ones that then have to actually sign the contract on behalf of their son or daughter. So the parents need to get this education too. 
We just did a session with some high school student athletes and their parents last night together. And we did this education together. And the parents had just as many questions, if not more than the student athletes, because they want, I mean, they want what's best for their son or daughter, but resources are different. Uh, starting point and, and understanding of financial worlds are different. I never talked about legal. I never knew when I was a kid that lawyers do more than just defend you when you're in court. I didn't know that. Now that's what <laughs> so I do true. every day. It's so right? true. So you've got to get that exposure and that understanding. And, and, and you're right. It's dicey. But here's the thing. We can't, we can't put this requirement on high schools, on high school coaches, athletic yes. directors, principals. We can't do that because not they're, they're not equipped for that. They already have so much that they're dealing with. The high school athletic associations don't want to be too involved because they don't want the liability exposure. So they have to find appropriate third parties that have this ability then to educate the masses and then communicate that to parents, what resources are available so that you can be educated and that your son or daughter can also start to be educated in this world. Yeah, that, that gets that gets uh, pretty convoluted there for a while. But, yeah. you know, hopefully as time goes on and this becomes more universally practiced across all states, hopefully more of these resources and more of these, you know, educational components like you're talking about get ironed out and get a little bit more, you know, realistic and, and applicable that we can now, you know, kind of set this template across the thing. I want to I want to just segue slightly, but it's still related into this recruiting process now. You know, you see so often, whether it's in the transfer portal or just directly out of high school. And, and I think this is important, male, female, revenue generating sports, non-revenue, gen, you know, non-traditional revenue generating sports. Um, how does that look now? Right. So, so you identify a young kid in high school in the days I was coming up, every letter, every flyer you got, every message you got was about education, GPAs, the kids we graduate, campus, right. draft picks developing tight ends, you know, that, that was the, <laughs> the, the basics of, of college recruiting back then. Now, obviously I hate to say it, that's second fold, especially at some of the big schools, but just across the board, what are these conversations now? And how are these schools kind of skirting the, the rules where you're not allowed to use the NIL stuff and collectives in recruiting practices, but they still kind of are what, what, like, what does that sure. look like for these families trying to navigate? We talked a little bit with Malachi and his dad, but I, I'd love to dive a little deeper into like how the schools handle it, what those internal conversations are, and then how it's presented to the family through the recruiting process. Sure. So recruiting is completely different um, these days. It evolves all the time. And, and what we're seeing, you know, if we set the stage for the listeners, recruiting Schools will use whatever assets they have available to help recruit. So they'll they'll talk about things like they'll show their locker rooms, like we talked about earlier. They'll they'll talk about uh, their you know their the number of student athletes that they put into the pros. They'll talk about their tradition. They'll talk about you know all of these different things are assets, right? Their coaching staff, their, their, their co where the coaches have been, and how the championships won, and the history and tradition and everything. Name, image, and likeness has now become another asset that schools will use as part of their recruiting. This is what we're doing. This is, these are the deals that people who are on our team, student athletes that play football here at this institution, even in the past year, these are the deals that they've gotten, right? I can't promise you as the coach and as the athletic director, as anyone in, from the university side, I can't, I can't promise you a deal, but these are the deals that our student athletes that come and play here are getting. And so we're, we're seeing an interesting, uh, an interesting kind of partnership, if you will, and I'll use that term loosely, but an interesting uh, relationship between collectives, NIL collectives in the athletic departments as well. The NCAA came out with guidelines that said that NIL collectives could not 
uh, use um, name, image, and likeness deals to recruit prospective student athletes. But we know that that still happens. They're not supposed to, but they do. And it's this idea that if I can promise you a deal when you come here, that will hopefully help you be more likely to decide to come here. I've talked to a lot of different parents that have had either schools, representatives of schools, or collective representatives reach out to them to promise them these types of certain deals. So we're we're seeing that. But you bring up such a great point when you talked about recruiting, because the other thing now that's happens because of the transfer portal, we also have a recruiting push that happens currently for student athletes that are already on the roster at a particular institution, because now since they have the right to transfer without having to sit out for a year, coaches, athletic departments have to continually recruit their student athletes that they already have on their roster so that they don't lose them because another school with another oh collective wants to recruit that student athlete away <laughs> with a name, image, and likeness. It deal. sounds exhausting. Like college, <laughs> college coaching always to me sounded exhausting. Recruiting year round, putting mm-hmm. out fires with high school fundraising, kids, and, fundraising yeah. boosters. I cannot imagine what these guys go through. I had dinner the other night with Mario Cristobal, the the head coach of the University of Miami, and just picking his brain. It, it's it's never ending. It's twenty four hours a day. It's That's a right. constant loop. And I think you make such a great point. You're not just recruiting new players. Every single day you are re-recruiting the players on your roster. That's right. And I and I've said before and I know we're you know we're not going to dive too deep into the transfer portal but I still think it's somewhat related. I think if I had my perfect wish, I'm great with the NIL in its own right. I'm fine with the transfer portal in its own right. Ideally, I think the NCAA should have just hitched their wagon to one of the two. And I'll tell you why. My right. concern so so take the kid from Pittsburgh, right? So coming out of college, USC probably didn't recruit him or he probably would have went there, but he's there now. Mm -hmm. But Pittsburgh's the one who gave him the scholarship. They recruited him out of high school. They put all the time and energy to develop him into a Bolitnikoff winner, top wide receiver in the country. Yep. And then he enters the portal and goes to the highest bidder, which ended up being USC. And I'm Pittsburgh saying, well, where was, where was USC three years ago? Where were they when you were a three-star recruit and they didn't want you because they signed four or five-star receivers that year. If you could do the NIL, but you were, once you went to that school, you were like the old transfer rules. You had to sit out a year. You can only do it once. Make $5 million. Great. But to be able to just bounce around to the highest bidder now an unlimited amount of times and just reshop yourself. I don't, I don't know that I love that. I'll be honest with you. I I, I don't know that I love okay. it. So, so I, I, let me play Please. devil's advocate yeah. for a little bit on this one. So, so here's what I think it's a learning opportunity. Cause I agree with you right now, bouncing around highest bidder that, that, that diminishes a lot, but what we have to show as well is this idea that that happens in real life. I'm a lawyer at, at, at a firm called Porter, Wright. If another firm Baker Hostetler says, Hey, Luke, we want to come and pay you more money because of all this great work you're doing in the sports space or, Hey, Jones day, this law firm or this other law firm, right? I could decide that I want to bounce around to the highest bidder. And I might go to one other law firm for a year and then to another law firm for a year. At a certain point, people say, okay, why is he not staying at one place? Is there something then wrong with this person because they've bounced around? Can they not get along with their teammates? Can they not get along right with the leadership or the coaching staff or what, what is it? Or are they just greedy and looking for you know the biggest payout? 
are they really adding value then to our program? I think we're going to get to that point where student athletes are going to start to realize that in the real world, you have the opportunity to bounce around from job to job, company to company. But at the college level, while you have that ability, is it, does it really benefit you in the long run? So one move here and there, okay, could make sense. But starting to bounce around and be that every year being that free agent, that might start to get. Yeah, to I guess be a my only much. caveat would be, you know, you look at the coaches. The argument is always the coaches can leave, but the coaches only can leave if they're bought out, right? So there's buyout clauses, right. you know, and then in the real world, there's non-compete. So I'm, I'm sure your 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 law firm right now, if you left, they you wouldn't be able to just like. There's probably non-competes and saying, listen, if you are right, if you're not going to work for us for X number of years, you can't go work for. A, B, and C, you know, law group, or, you know, when I was a player, yeah, I, I had free agency, but I had a contract that I could only hit free for a certain period right? of time. But what we've, what we've created now in college football is you're a free agent every single year and you can be a free agent every single year. Is there an industry where that is the case in the real world? I don't know. Of <laughs> right. I don't, I don't know of one where you could just arbitrarily bounce around with no non-competes with no contract, with no buyout. I, maybe I'm wrong. Well, there are some, there are some, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, a lot of times you could be a teacher, right? You could be a teacher and you go to right, different schools. Lose, I mean, there, you there are a lot of tenure, you lose your pension and uh, right, right. You, you could lose tenure. So you, could, you, you could lose retirement. There's right? There's yeah, some downsides right, right. to it. Yeah. There are risk factors to it, but I think, I think ultimately you're right. And, and, and what we've created because of, you know, and the NCAA did the transfer portal changes to their rules first in 2020. Yeah. then name, image, and likeness, which I think they still thought they were going yeah, to true. win on, and yep. they didn't, came around 2021. So now the two of them together have created this quasi-free agency that has no guardrails whatsoever, right? If you think about the NFL, the NBA, in pro sports, there are guardrails for timing, windows, what you can do and can't do during free agency. But right now, at the NCAA, it's it truly crazy. is a wild, yeah. wild And rest. listen, if I was a college kid, I don't put any of this on the, on the plate of these college kids. That's right. I am all for... They, the kids didn't make the rules. The kids didn't set, they didn't win the court cases that the kids are just operating in the environment that was laid out for them. And I'm a believer. If you don't like the rules, change them, but don't fault the people that are playing by them. So if I'm these kids, I right. am full supporter of all these young student athletes, get what you can get until they, cause the rules are going to change at some point. So you might as well strike while, while you have the opportunity to. So I don't place any of this on the feet of the kids. Like we talk about most around here, most of the time it's the adults who ruin the stuff for the kids. The adults are the ones yes, who can't figure yes. anything out. And that's but right. In this case, the adults not being able to figure it out benefited the kids, which is a rare, which is a rare occurrence. That's right. Absolutely. So, right. So the last thing before I let you go, and, and I think it's an interesting thing and we haven't touched on it. So I want to just dive into it where I see the NIL being really, really beneficial and you mentioned it earlier was the non-revenue generating sport. So, so Miami just got these, um, these two sisters, they're twins. I, I off the top of my head, I can't remember their name. They just transferred. The yeah, Cavender yes, twins. They have a huge yep. TikTok, mm -hmm. social media. They have a huge presence, um, with young kids and whatnot on social media. And they just transferred to Miami and they can print money. There's a young gymnast who now you see her on TV. She's, um, on all sorts. I think she goes to LSU and she does all sorts yes. of, so to me, those, those girls moving on to those sports, non-traditional gener revenue generating, generating sports, there really was no light at the end of the tunnel for them to make a quote unquote living, right? You played college basketball at Duke. Yeah. For two years, 
no one paid you any money. You went to school for free and then you had the opportunity to get drafted for, you know, all these other, these other sports. So where I really like it is in instances like that, where these young, a lot of them are female, right? A lot of these young girls can capitalize on the social media movement, their, their involvement. They understand that world. And we see a lot of these, these young girls making a ton of money. Like to me that I, I really like, because without that, it's going to be hard for a lot of these girls to make a living out of the sport they've committed their entire life to just because we don't have the infrastructure in our country where there's professional leagues in the traditional sense for them to earn a, a living right. like we do in some of the other sports, specifically the men's sports. So it, it, talk a little bit about what you've seen in that realm. Cause I, to me, that is where a lot of the benefit that I've seen comes from. Absolutely. And, and that's the really the positive side of name, image and likeness that doesn't get as much attention. So I'm, I'm so glad that you brought it up because there are student athletes that are getting deals that are smaller deals, some that are big deals, but but even smaller deals that are helping them even pay through co- their way through college. We forget that there are a lot of student athletes that get partial scholarships for Olympic sports and non-revenue generating sports. So they have the opportunity where you can earn some compensation and then leave school debt free is a huge win and start off maybe even with a little nest egg when you start in the working world after you leave college is a huge opportunity. So we're seeing uh, across sports, lacrosse, there's a a, a lacrosse player who has a huge social media following uh, that is making six figures just from the posts that they're, that they're making for women, student athletes. A lot of times what social media analysis will say is that they are, they are more engaged with their social media following. And so it's the engagement that brands are truly looking for. So when a brand is trying to penetrate a market, they're going to look for someone who has high engagement to be that influencer for them on social media. Just like flips flip to what we talked about earlier on the men's side, you know, somebody has 10,000, a guy has 10,000 followers. He never talks to his followers and engages with them, but gets this deal because he's on the football team. But when you look at a, that's not a real business deal for, for, for traditional purposes, but you look at a, a woman student athlete uh, that has a highly engaged, maybe she only has 10,000 followers, but she's highly engaged. So every time she puts something out there on social media, there's comments, there's engagement, there's, there's uh, interaction with her post. That's what brands are really looking for. So we're seeing more and more of those opportunities present themselves uh, for women student athletes and for student athletes and non-revenue generating sports. And the last thing along those lines that I'll say is there are student athletes now who are able to earn compensation by going back to their hometown where they might be the only person that's a D1 student athlete in their sport and they can do clinics and camps and do coaching uh, sessions and private coaching sessions with students where they can now make money off of that. And it falls under name, image, and likeness. And what a great opportunity for them to put money in their pocket during the summertime or during their off season in ways that they've never been able I love to that. before. That, that's a really good point. We, we run a tight end camp of NFL players called TEU every summer in Nashville. And for the first time this year, we were able to bring four college kids under the name, image, likeness program that they were able to attend. Um, so, you know, again, outside of the, the deal they struck, we could pay for their dinner. We could put them up in the hotel yes. for two days. They, in essence, were no different than the NFL players. They practiced with us. They ran routes. We did training and, and it was just how, what a cool opportunity for these kids. And then they went back to the, their coaches were all great. They gave them a couple days out of summer program, knowing they were come down to work with us. Um, right. So I think those are gr- great points. It's not always the transactional business component. It's some of these other avenues that in the old days, you couldn't go work a football camp. You're an, you're an NCAA right. division one football player. And when you're home for the summer, you can't go get paid to work 
a football camp. So like, I, I think that's a great point that you brought up. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. This is my last question. And, and again, Luke, I, I can't thank you enough for, for your time. This has been crazy informative and, and super, super interesting conversation. So the last thing I'm going to put you on the spot. What's the future? Where, where do you see it going? Mm. Where do you see maybe some of the pivots? Like if you had a crystal ball and you wanted to lay out what the next five to 10 years of the M- NIL, you know, relationship in the NCAA, like in your mind, where do you see it moving? I think name, image, and likeness. And this is the, this is a great question. And so many people in this industry get the question. And oftentimes the response is, I, we don't know. We don't know where this is all going. Here's what I say to that. I think colleges and universities will decide where name, image, and likeness is going. Ultimately, I think that university athletic departments will realize we don't want third parties, these outside collectives and other organizations coming in saying what name, image, and likeness should look like and taking advantage of the the opportunity to to make money off of our student athletes. We're going to take this in-house. I think we're going to see more colleges and universities start to say, we can do this. We can use our corporate sponsors and cut off a portion for our student athletes to put deals together. We can have our donors who are donating for our locker rooms and other facilities that we can now take a portion of that and make deals for our student athletes. We can work with our own licensing for them to use our marks of our, the logos and the marks of our institution to in their, in their promotion and advertising. We can take control of this. And I think we're going to see university athletic departments start to take more control over name, image, and likeness instead of being reactionary, start to be proactive. And I think in doing that, because a lot of people are looking for Congress to come out with a national plan for name, image, and likeness. That will not happen anytime soon. And I think that's a good thing. I think we want the market to determine what works, what doesn't, what's good for our student athletes, what's good for our universities, what's good for our families, for the market to decide that as opposed to legislation to decide that. And so that over the next few years, if we start to figure that out as an industry ourselves, then Congress doesn't have to step in. Or if they do, the innovation has already been there so that when they come up with legislation, it's common sense legislation that just protects people that doesn't put hindrances that don't make any sense. So I think we're going to see universities take control of this and take more of this in-house into the future. I think that's super, super smart. Uh, I think that's really insightful. And and I, I think your understanding, your, your wisdom on this, obviously you, you live this world and, and the resource that you're bringing to our viewers today by, by taking this time to kind of answer these questions and paint this picture of what this, you know, it's changing by the day, right? I mean, it changed every single the day. day. There's a new press release, a new story, a new court case. So for you to kind of come and, and paint this in a picture that we can all kind of wrap our heads around um, again, Luke Fedlum, um, author of the book, sports law, practical guide to protecting the interest of athletes, host of a, of a podcast, protecting your possibilities. Um, Luke, I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking your time, uh, providing your, your insight and your wisdom into this, into this world. Um, and just be a huge asset for us here. Um, on you think. Greg, thank you so much for having me. Your listeners, I always put stuff out on social media just from an education perspective. So at Luke Fedlam on any, you know, Instagram, Twitter, um, it's all about that education. So what you're doing with Youth, Youth Inc. is such a great opportunity for families and a resource. I'm just honored to be a part of it. Thank you so uh, much for having me. We're going to have to have you back. As things as things change, we'll, we'll bring you back. You'll be our our expert NIL uh, correspondent. So we'll, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. All Anytime. Right, thank you so much. I hope you guys 
enjoyed that episode with Luke Fedlum. Um, that the NIL world is really taking over. You know, you can't follow sports, especially at the collegiate level, without some understanding of kind of this new transformation that's going on. Um, it's it's you know, as young as high school kids now being able to partake in, you know, endorsement deals and earn money on their likeness and their name. And it's a really drastic change from how, you know, most of us grew up understanding, you know, amateur athletics at the collegiate level and high school level. So to have someone like Luke be able to really break it down, give us the backstory, explain not only how we've come to this point, but where he sees it going and, you know, what the mechanisms of, you know, best practice are for, for operating it in the meantime. So I, I found that conversation to be super enlightening, super interesting. I hope you guys did too. Um, you know, at this time, as always, I'm going to be bringing in my producer, Tasha, with some audience questions. This has become a very popular segment here on You Think, and uh, looking forward to seeing what Tasha has for us today. Tasha, what's happening? Hey, yeah. NIL is crazy. Do you ever think like, man, I missed out on a lot of money because the NIL rule wasn't created? You know, I think back to college and, and I say this to people all the time. I said it actually to my wife the other night. She went to college with me. You know, the, the first couple of days of every month, I'd get my scholarship check. You know, you get like a thousand bucks, you know, for a scholarship check and you paid a couple hundred bucks in rent. So you had you had money left over. And for the first couple of nights, you know, we'd eat good, which, you know, in college, you know, you're going to TGI Fridays, you know, you're, you're eating right. good, quote unquote. And by the, you know, the second half of the month, you've run out of money, you're eating at Wendy's, you're eating at, you know, McDonald's and Bojang, you're eating fast food and you're just kind of making it, you're just kind of making ends meet. And I think back, like if someone gave me 25 grand as a college kid, my head would have fallen off. Like, I, I don't know what I would have done with $25,000. You know, I did stupid things with a thousand dollars. Yeah, you just every could've... day it could have been it yeah, could have been day. Friday every day. You could have been sponsored. You know, by them. I, <laughs> I, oh man, I could have been anyway. So it, it's just you know it's fascinating to me to just see what kind of you know what kind of experience this is for young kids. And you know, part of me says I get it. You know, kids should make what they can, but it also scares me a little bit. And you know, I, I asked Luke a couple times, you know, how he how he sees this going. So it was uh, I don't know how I would have done making hundreds of thousands of dollars in college, but, uh, I guess I would have liked to have found out. <laughs> I'm sure you would. Um, some of our fan questions today, we have three for you today, Greg. Um, but one of them first we want to talk about is comes from the San Diego Tribune and it basically research is coming out that parents are being more hands-off in Norway specifically in their kids development. And they believe that this is the key that keeps their athletes playing longer. So what are your thoughts on more hands-off parenting and sports development. You know, I, I read that and I, I found that to be pretty, in, you know, pretty interesting. I guess the question that I would have for them would be, you know, there's always, there's always underlying ton, context, you know, are the families able to be hands off because the, the structure of the sport, you know, whether, whether basketball, baseball, whatever the, the structure of the sport has such a good foundation, has such good instruction, such good developmental, you know, practices that the parents don't have to be involved right? Is it the parents are not involved because it's so good or is it so good because the parents aren't involved? So I guess it's like chicken or the egg. That would be my, my first question. And then listen, if, if I could drop my kid out of practice and I'm confident that the coaches, the instruction, the development, the organization, the culture, the messaging is done top notch, I don't have to coach the team. I am the first to say I would love to drop my kid off at practice and not stress about it all day and deal with the families and deal with the emails and make the lineup. And it's an exhausting life. I would love to not do it, but I'm not going to drop my kid off and have 
the opposite experience and then drive away and, you know, go golf and say, I'll pick you up in a couple hours when practice is over. And that I'm not doing it. I'm not going to put my kid in a situation where I don't feel like it's being run the right way, a healthy way, a developmentally appropriate way. And if it's not done by somebody else, then parents find the need to get more involved. So that would be my response to this, to this study. Um, if parents don't have to be involved and the practices in place are really good and really successful, that's every parent's dream. I think it, in our country, I think the way we're doing it, I think that's more the exception than the rule. I, I think there's a lot more poorly run teams than there are well-run teams. And I think that's why the top kids and the kids who want to do it at the highest level all kind of gravitate towards a similar pathway. Because once you find that coach, once you find that organization or program that does it the way it needs to be done, that's everyone's dream. That's every parent's dream. Um, and I'm no different. So I, that would be, that would be, that sounds amazing. I, I would love to know how we can, you know, replicate that across the board and, and, you know, create a large scale, um, version of that here in America. So I, I guess that would be my reaction to it. Hmm. Norway, man, making Norway. Moves. I'm Norwegian by the way. So <laughs> oh, just for the record, Olson, wow. E-N Norwegian, O-N Swedish, Tasha. Ooh, knowledge is power. You can use that one day. Thank you. I don't You're know welcome. where I will use that, but thank you, never you know. for that could information. Could be a good bar trick. Could be a good, who knows? Pickup line. Who knows? You never know. Pickup line. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Sweden? <laughs> oh, okay. And then the second question we have for you today is someone through Instagram wants to know, how do you handle coaching your son without the rest of the team? So it sounds like your son's a good player. And do you hold him back intentionally so parents don't think you're being unfair? Because they also had kids and they feel like when they're coaching them, they hold them back as well. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, coach, coaching your kids is very hard. It is very hard. It, it, there is no perfect uh, strategy. There is no perfect uh, you know, methodology of doing it. Um, I think that the baseline approach that parents who coach their kids' team should have is you need to coach your kid like you would coach anyone else's kid. If they're the best player, they're the best player. If they're not the best player and they're on the bottom, they're not the best player and they're near the bottom. And it needs to be reflected in the game. It needs to be reflected in the position they play. Are they able to play the position that they're playing and, and do it well, then yeah. But then they ha it has nothing to do with that. They're, they're your kid. They can play that position well. It's in the best interest of the team to be the quarterback, be the shortstop, be the pitcher, the, the, you know, they're the striker in soccer, whatever it is. If your child is capable, no, you should not punish your kid because he's, he, he or she is your kid. That's not fair to them either. But you also can't prop them up and put them in positions that aren't in the best interest of the team just because he or she is your kid, right? So what, however you would treat someone else's kid is how you have to treat your kid. And that could be good or that could be on the other end. Um, and if you're not comfortable with that approach, then you can't coach it because I can't ask another parent to trust me to make decisions about their kids playing time, their kids positioning, their kids development. If I don't apply the same practices to my kid, if my kid's one of the best batters, he'll bat appropriately. If he's not currently batting that well, he's going to move to a different spot in the lineup. If he's not fielding the ball great, he's not going to be put at shortstop or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's just fair is fair. 
So I, I don't believe in punish. The one thing I would say I could probably be better at is sometimes I go overboard and do overcoach my kids, not like overcoach them, but like over hold them to a more higher standard to really go out of my way and show the other families. Like there is no daddy ball. There is no favoritism. What's earned is earned. Whether it's my kid or your kid, if they're out there in a position, it's because they've shown they're capable of doing this at a high level. That's in the best interest of the kids around them. If that's playing quarterback. Okay. My kid. Yeah. He might stand at quarterback because he's able to execute all the things that allows your kid to run with the ball, your kid to catch the ball, whatever it is. If he can't play quarterback, I can't with a straight face, roll him out there to play but we can't compute a complete a pass. We can't, you know, execute a handoff. He, then it looks stupid. That's not in anyone's best interest. So fair is fair, whether it's my kid or your kid, we need to apply the same standards and, and expectations across the board. Was your dad hard on you when you were playing? Oh yeah. My, my yeah, dad saying was, was if he was ever going to error, he was going to be, he was going to error on the side of making it harder for us. No one, if you asked all the kids, parents who ever played with us growing up, no one would ever say Chris Olson and the viewers saw the Chris Olson episode. So I think they got a good insight into how his mind works. Um, no one ever said the Olson kids only got those opportunities because their dad was the coach. Like it just, now he was fortunate because his sons all were college recruited football players. So it didn't look silly that my two brothers were quarterbacks and that I got every ball thrown to me. It was like, well, yeah, who else would, you know, well, if they weren't my kids, I'd still <laughs> throw it. To, you know what I mean? Like my dad had yeah. that to fall back on, but, um, we had to earn our stripes and, it, and I wouldn't even say like everybody else, we probably had to earn our stripes more so than anybody else on the team. Um, especially in high school. Hmm. All right. And the last fan question is kind of a fun one. I'm interested in it. Would you, Greg, ever be an umpire or referee? At the youth level? No, no chance. Why? Because I feel like even if you're good people, no one's ever happy, right? Mm. Like, um, you know, I, I, maybe I should take that. Back. I, I don't He's envision- taking it back. I don't envision myself ever doing it. So my, my no still stands. I think I would do a good job as an umpire because I think all everyone wants is for the umpire to just do a good job. And I think I would do a good job. I think I'd be fair. I think I would not play favorites. I would be consistent. I would, you know, I would treat the other coaches fairly. When they talk to me, I wouldn't blow up on them and yell back and escalate the situation. I'd respect the kids on the field. I'd make it about the kids. I wouldn't, you know, be there dancing and acting stupid and making it all about myself. So I think I'd be a very good youth referee umpire. I would never do it. With that being said, I've always said that the issue of umpiring and refereeing at higher levels is they don't attract enough former athletes, right? So in the, if I was in charge of the NFL, if Roger Goodell said, Greg, how do I address, you know, the refereeing shortage or the referee development program? I would try to recruit former players. They've been on the field. They know how fast it is. They've seen it. They've experienced it. They've felt it. They can get into the minds of the players, how they're being coached. I think there's an inherent advantage there of people who've been there, done that now on the other side, being in charge of refereeing or umpiring. So lower level, we need more people to do it a great job. I would do a great job, not to pat myself on the back, but I would, I would never sign up for it because it's a thankless proposition. 
the refereeing and umpiring issues that we see today, you know, major league baseball and basketball and everyone has an issue with the umpires. They need to get more former guys who've done it. We saw Richard Jefferson do it for a summer league game. Like, I love that. I love that. He looked like like he had a great time. I love that. Like they should encourage more former players to get into the pipeline of being referees or umpires. And I think it would help. I think it would help the game. I think having people that have lived it, breathed it, played it, understand the mindset now making decisions that could be huge decisions in the outcome of the game, I think would be good for, for those higher levels. I think Richard Jefferson did it once. I think you should do it like one time, maybe at, at just, like prof- at the professional level or like 10 year old baseball and just get into a fight with the coach. I think 10 year old baseball would be fun for you. I think, I think if we cut imagine? this out, it gets like a million likes. I think Greg should do, um, um, if, uh, game, make, here's, here, we'll make a deal. If this okay. gets a million views um, or a million likes, I don't know, whatever that is, I will referee a youth sporting event. Perfect. There, it's on Let's the record. Let's make it happen. It's on the record, Tasha. Now it's make on it the happen. record. Make Let's it go, happen. people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it for all the fan questions today. And you could always submit them at you think or at Greg Olson on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. All right, well, that's it. For this episode of You Think, presented by Audiorama and our sponsor, Body Armor, uh, please, as always, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, until next week, we'll see you guys then. Thanks.